On Education is sponsored by Participate, a community learning platform where the world learns together. Later in the episode, we'll hear about one of Participate's communities, Teach the Global Goals, and how you can get involved in its free community learning opportunities with educators around the world. Full circle. Full circle, Glenn, baby. We just came full circle on the whole <laughs> part of the podcast. It's because we're professionals. Welcome to On Education, part of the On Podcast Media Network. My name is Mike Washburn. And I'm Glenn Irvin. Friends, we have an awesome pod for you today. We will discuss how summer school has become a big business this year, whether teaching to the test is a silly phrase, and our guest this week is educator and researcher Sherry Jones. So this is Teacher Appreciation Week, um, which means that you, you get to see lots of memes on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and I get I, I mean, I appreciate all of my teacher friends and all the teachers everywhere. I just I just like that. I've seen already like a million graphics and it's only, you know, Monday. I know um, people are on it this week. I mean, uh, this year, this year, it. this year, maybe. Yes. Yeah. I, I think that this is the year the teachers really, you know, we should really appreciate you know, mm. the the hellscape of teaching that has been 2020, 2021. Yes, it's been a ch- challenging year to be. <laughs> <laughs> I like how I said hellscape and you said challenging year. <laughs> That's so much nicer than what I said. Oh, my God. Oh, yes. boy. Yes. So all of our teacher friends, educators all around the world, actually. Um, happy Teacher Appreciation Week. What you're doing is and have always been doing is amazing. And, and, and the way that you're able to pull it off, um, through all of the different circumstances that have been, uh, thrown in front of you, um, and still be innovative and still be, as Mike says, engaging. Um, (laughs) we, you still are all of those things. And so you are amazing people and uh, a week is the least we can do is happy teacher appreciation week. Um, Hopefully, I get the donuts every single morning and uh, um, any other kinds of sweet things coming my way. That is a great thing for Glenn. If you just give me sweet things, boom, that'll satisfy Some, sou- some Sour Patch <laughs> Kids and you're all set. Yes, I haven't had some of those in a long time. So, yes, that oh, would be fantastic. A staple around here now. <laughs> uh, Jacob calls them Sour Humans. Little sour, sour humans. He says, like he, li- little sour humans is what, what they're called. <laughs> it's just, it's super, I love that. Yes, funny, they are little sour humans. Funny. Among all the other things that he's doing lately, that is that is super hilarious. Yes. We're in a we're in a planting phase, a gardening oh, phase. Nice. He wants to plant seeds. Um, awesome. he took a he took a tomato yeah. off the counter and then yeah. he went out into the backyard and he put the tomato in the ground. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's kinda, you're going to have to that's put the kind a, of gardening I'm actual, dealing with right now. Yes, a, a tomato plant overnight. You're going to have to put one into the ground there just to, you know, to pretend. Like, hey. Oh my God, look what you did. You grew yes. a tomato plant from the, No, because then he'll take all of the other tomatoes and put that's that true. The could, there could be all the tomatoes could be gone <laughs> from the house. Yes. That might not be a good thing. Yes. Uh, oh, maybe boy. Glenn's theory of how to go about doing this is not the right way to, <laughs> to do this. Super cute though. I love that. So, 
so so let's talk about Twitter because it looks yes. like the next three things that we're gonna talk about all come from <laughs> all come from Twitter because that's the way we do things around here. Absolutely. Um, so so you go first, I guess. Okay, so friend of the podcast and it has and a guest of the podcast too, yes, Tom indeed. Rademacher. He posted today add teacher appreciation week to the list of things that are impossible for admin to get right this year. That's an interesting post there. And I have something to say about just that part, but here's the real juice, the real hot take. Here's what I want. Call it an early year. And then another little point, nothing else. So <laughs> let me address the first part, and then, and then we could talk about the, the other part too. Um, teacher appreciation week to the list that are impossible for admin to get right this year. I think it's difficult for admin to get that right any year. Um, but I think admin does a fantastic job where I work at, as far as trying to make sure that we feel appreciated, even when it's not teacher appreciation week. And that is fantastic admin. And I think that if you have that type of situation, then you already know that that's actually not true. And of course the opposite exists because I've worked for some administrators that unfortunately never got that right, never showed their appreciation. And in fact, maybe even set up barriers uh, and obstacles for teachers and made their jobs that much more difficult. I think that's like life though. Don't you, Mike, this doesn't just doesn't exist in teaching. Anybody that works, you know, now you've worked obviously in, in public ed or in education in general, and then you were, you're also working for private companies, your boss and your bosses, let's call them the people that are in administration are people too. And they have a variety of way of, of being able to run the, either the school or the companies themselves. And some of them are amazing people. And some of them, not so much. <laughs> and so, some, yeah, some of them, they'll consider themselves still teachers. Like, yes. You know what I yes. mean? Just because they're a principal doesn't yes. mean they're a teacher or Absolutely. an administrator. I mean, I Absolutely. Mean, I mean, and we know tons of amazing principals. Yes. We know tons of amazing superintendents. Mm. We know tons of amazing administrators at all levels of the spectrum. Yes. And if you don't think they're tearing their hair, eyes, whatever out, yeah. you know, over the way that the last year has progressed, you're out of your friggin' minds. Like, yeah. like, like it, I have no doubt it, it's there. They are constantly losing sleep mm. over, over what's been going on and how to make this year as good as humanly possible yes. under the most insane amount of stress in recent history. It's there's never been no a school year like this. Yeah. And, and so many decisions, Mike, where you have to make a decision and it's truly almost always a no win situation. So, and so no matter what consequential, exactly. Everything that you do has huge implications. Like you just said, like it just, it on a variety of different things. So talk about pressure to perform, but even then they still yeah. have a way. My, my principal, and we told him that just the other day, I think it was 
was it his birthday or no it was a principal's it was principal's day i think it fell on a saturday actually national principal's day and it fell on a saturday so we celebrated on friday and we as a staff like we had this little party for him or whatever might be you know kind of a little thing for before school began and even then when we're telling him my god you were fantastic to work for and even then you know what he told all of us it's because of you guys you know he he it's it, that's a great leader and it wouldn't be it doesn't matter if it was a principal at a school or a superintendent or the boss at a specific company some people are just amazing and awesome and they do appreciate you and some not so much so anyway that's my first part but the part that I really had a problem with, I mean, I had a problem with that first part, but this second part is tough for me to go ahead and and um, and take. And it says, here's what I want, call it an early year. So right now we're May 3rd uh, is when we're recording this podcast. This, this tweet was on May 2nd, Sunday. Um, there's a lot wrong with that. Later in, in the, you know, as, there's, 1000 likes on it and 86 retweets. So it's, it, I mean, it's got a lot of exposure and 19 responses to it. Later on, as people responded to it, he did write that it was a, this is a joke, right? Um, even if it was a joke, the implication of saying, Hey, let's just call it the year right now. The reason why it's bad, multiple reasons why it's bad, but there's this perception and it unfortunately perpetuates throughout at least the United States. I don't know if it happens in Canada, but in the United States, it is definitely a thing that teachers are lazy, that yeah. teachers want to find an easy way out, that teachers have the summer off so that, you know, they and they still get paid. Um, and there's this perception that whether it's true or not, and it's not true, and we know it's not true, but it is there and it does exist. When you make a statement like this, it just feeds into that. The second part about this is you signed a contract, as many people have, to, mm -hmm. to work a specific amount of time, blah, 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 whatever it might be, in unusual, tough circumstances. But everybody's in unusual, tough circumstances right now that are adults. We talked about this way a long time ago, last year. Uh, you had said, Mike, the people that that were giving that were at the grocery store remember that when you were talking about that in april of last year the people that were at the uh, convenience stores still working every single day even though there was the potential for them to get sick they still came to work every single damn day they still did things because that's what you committed to it, the nurses the doctors you committed to this thing mm -hmm. You can't say, call it an early year, May 3rd, and then you still have a month left of school. Even if it's a joke, if I, I don't know, I just, it just fired me up because I'm just like, you, it, it feeds that, that perception that teachers are lazy. And number two, you committed to this. So I understand things are difficult and things have been difficult, but you find a way to muster through and you finish out your year or you resign and you stop being an educator stop being a teacher if it's too tough and a lot of people have but you you gotta you still gotta be able to go ahead and do that thing a lot everybody has in the world this is not even a localized thing this is the whole 
world that's going through this in different yeah. phases and different upticks, different uh, people passing away. But we still do our thing because we've committed to it. So anyway, it really got to me as I saw it. And I and I have a lot of respect for Tom. But this tweet really is ah, just not there. Not the best joke in the world. Huh? No, no. That's, a, that's all. Not a um, good joke. <laughs> So, so how about how about minute minute Minnesota? I'm a I'm a fan I'm a fan of the state before, but but um, your your home state mm-hmm. um, is is very purple in this map. We're gonna link an article. Yes. Um, and this is about um, willingness to get vaccinated. Yeah. And the article talks about how herd immunity might actually be impossible in the United States mm. because of vaccine hesitancy. Um, and um, I'll tell you, there isn't much vaccine hesitancy in the great state of Minnesota, is there? No. And I didn't even know this specifically. Someone else had posted just the, the image just of Minnesota uh, like cut out. Um, and I was like, where did you get this from? And then they linked the New York Times article. And if you look at the entire nation, it really shows you um, how diverse this country is. There's so much that you could say about this image, and you guys will have to look at it in the article. Um, it's about halfway through the article. There's an actual image there, and it just basically says uneven willingness to get vaccinated. Um, and it goes, it's color-coded, so dark purple means, you know, a high percentage of people, and then the the lighter color that it gets is a low percentage of people. And my God, it's just insane. And it really speaks, though, to how different people view what's actually happening right now and throughout the world how different people throughout the united states view it and whether or not they'd be willing to go ahead and get vaccinated even um and we have states that are our neighboring state for example north dakota where it's a very super light color and then we have minnesota where it's the darkest of the colors that are represented as far as on the map there um and it's it really does speak true, though, to how how crazy our different our ideas and and our uh, everything about us, really the core fabric of who we are, and yet we are the same country. So it, it I I found it fascinating, and I think you guys will too if you just take a look at it and then just kind of take a look at some of the different states and it's crazy. It's it's crazy, and I I'm I'm super happy. Um, obviously that I ended up in this state and it was just by pure circumstance. It, it really was an internet search, Mike, that got me to Minnesota. <laughs> it was the right. power of the internet. Cause I was in Colorado, uh, teaching there and my salary was super low and the cost of living was really yeah, high. You were just looking to get paid more. And I really, what we, my wife and I said, we're never going to be able to buy a house here. We're just not going to be able to afford to do anything more than just live in an apartment. Um, so then we just started looking on the internet for like what state has the highest pay versus the cost of living, you know, as far as those two factors. And at that point in time, um, which was now 12, 13 years ago, um, the state of Minnesota and Wisconsin fit the thing. Lowest cost of living, highest pay for educators. Hey, I picked the right state. 
<laughs> and I was super lucky to have gotten hired to here too. Yes, I, I, I'm very excited to live here and, and to work here. <laughs> so another fun Twitter thread. I, I don't know how to say that person's name, so I'm not going to. Um, but Cyan we will link... Cyanergetic. Cyanergetic. As that at cyanergetic, something like that. Cyanergetic. E plus Han equals MC squared, whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yes. we just butchered your name. I'm sorry. sorry. Um, yep. But we're going to link this in the chat. So it says, unpopular opinion for teachers, uh, teaching to the test is a silly phrase. The test covers the minimum standards. The standards are the minimum of what to teach. If you teach the content well and at above standards, then the teaching to the test part resolves itself. Uh, he goes on to say, if the test is designed from the curriculum standards for that subject and you teach that subject based on the standards, you're teaching the standards in the curriculum. It's a minimum, not a maximum. Hmm. CIA curriculum instruction assessment. Good assessments can guide good instruction as long as it is linked to good curriculum. Are assessments the issue or is it the power that they've been given that's problematic? Assessments are part of life. It's not that deep. First couple of years teaching. Dramatics added. Oh my God, the test, the test, the test. We have to ace it or nothing matters. After uh, the test. Oh yeah, it exists, but we're going to learn and have fun in here. You'll do fine. We're not going to think about it until then. There is the dramatic reading of a four-part tweet. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, that was very good. There's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> Just like everything you ever hear me say related to stuff that's sort of like at first at so at first like when you just if you just whizzed by this and you were doom scrolling mm -hmm. you know at night or something like that just swiping by stuff and you just read this you'd go yes 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 or no you would go no you would go no 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 you would go ah this is ridiculous i disagree with all of this um teaching to the test you know is is what we do and it's bad like everything there is nuance to this conversation hmm. and in and of itself, a lot of what he's saying here under the microscope, I think of critical thinking, or at least having reasonable arguments. Um, a lot of what he said here is, 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 has, has shreds of truth to it. Hmm. And, and so it makes it, it makes it complicated uh, because I think that like with a lot of things, the, the Twitterati, you know, go nuts <laughs> and, and it's, and it's, um, you know, it's wrong. Um, but it's not wrong. Some of it is not wrong. Um, the, the term, it, it's about how it's misused. Um, it's, it's not about the term itself by definition. He's right. So anyways, it's, it's, it's an interesting thread. Yes. Um, and and I I think it actually comes back to a lot of the same stuff that we talked about with learning loss, the the idea of it's not the teaching to the test that's the problem; it's the implications of the testing itself, and that that teaching to the test is not proper learning in and of itself, you know, and that 
there's not learning happening there's memorization happening hmm. and 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 the you know the outcomes of those tests become the benchmarks for your entire institution and yeah. in some cases you as an educator yes and absolutely. that's the that's the actual problem with testing and teaching teaching to the test yeah I also wrote, and and he did respond that he agreed with me that that the tests are designed by for-profit corporations, as we've talked about on here in the past. But if if there is a minimum standard for kids that they need to achieve, I agree with that. But those minimum standards should be created by teachers, even locally created by teachers. So instead of a a summative assessment one-time high stakes exam more of a cumulative knowledge base that where you get to prove over an entire year of kind of where you're actually at in a variety of different ways um, so it's not just this one test where you basically i mean it's still a multiple choice test for the most part uh, the ones that are given here in, in Minnesota are a reading exam, a science exam, and a math exam, and all of them are multiple choice. I mm -hmm. mean, it's it's a it gives you a very limited scope of like what actually the students can and can't do. That limit actually in that viewpoint is it has political implications. It does as far as within our state and actually probably throughout the United States. Um, and it has also, like you just said, it could have some devastating consequences as far as funding is concerned. It could be associated with funding depending upon if, if your school did poorly or uh, so on and so forth. So it, you're right. It is complicated. Uh, many of these things are. Anytime anyone begins, though, with unpopular opinion, though, everybody's going <laughs> to... Like the doom, doom We're all going to that right now. We're yeah. attracted by that, like hornets <laughs> we're like we're ready to go ahead and pounce on those kind of things so yes um and you know I, what's funny it's yeah. because of the next article we're gonna link it in the yeah. funny um everyone is just really tired like i'm tired and i'm not even a teaching like mm. teaching in a class yeah there's not much more most of us can take so when summer school is proposed um speaking of doom scrolling um <laughs> i can't imagine the dread that some educators who are making, you know, $25,000, $35,000 a year in Florida or wherever, you know, and have to teach, keep teaching during the summer just to keep putting food on the table, you know, or have to use it to supplement their income. Yes. It's not good, man. Mm. Um, people are tired, right? Yeah. And uh, it's a news article from Ed Week. It just basically says... Summer school is more important than ever. Uh, okay. Uh, but teachers are fried and need a break. Um, the biggest thing that I pulled from this was basically that the federal government has given um, more than $1.2 billion specifically earmarked for summer learning and what they're calling enrichment programs, evidence-based summer learning programs. And we've talked about it too, that it's that companies know this exists out there. So it's not just summer school teachers that they need, but there's programs that people are purchasing. Uh, there's apps and so on and so forth that where this money could be used 
um, uh, as far as purchases. Um, and so it, I know a lot of teachers that end up teaching summer school no matter what. And I think that the, what this article is explaining too is that there's going to be a lot more this year. There's a lot more money being pushed to it. Um, and there's going to be a lot more people basically kind of working almost this entire, you know, throughout this entire summer. And man, that's tough. That's a tough situation. That's a, it, and some people, they see that and they're like, I, it's something I have to do. Like you just described, Mike, yeah. it, it'll help me to be able to get one more mortgage payment, one more, a couple more car payments, um, in, um, or just to make sure that we can make it to next fall again, to be able to do, um, you know, financially. So God, talking about teachers are fried. That is, that is the case. I don't know if summer school is more important than ever. I, I, I disagree with that, but obviously there's a big push by the federal government and by push, I mean a lot of funds, uh, that are available specifically for this, for the summer. Um, we'll see how it ends up going, uh, you know, as far as, you know, what, what ends up being the outcome of that. Um, and I'll for those you, teachers, if these funds get, yeah. I'll tell you what I could get behind. If these funds get used yeah. to fund summer camps yeah. for, for kids to go to summer camp and learn coding or game design oh, yeah. or for sure, you know, drone flying or, yeah. you know, all of these really cool things that you learn at summer camps these days and they pay college kids to teach them, mm -hmm. you know, I'm all for that. I yeah. think that's great. And the, we, I, I'm not even, we can't get enough of those. Like no. seriously, like, like anytime we can put money into giving college kids an opportunity to give back, um, to, to, to earn an income, but to also teach other younger kids, make an impression on them. Sure. Um, give them leadership opportunities and opportunities to be a mentor while teaching young kids things that they're super interested in, like coding or game design all day. Do that all day, please. Um, but I'm afraid but, that this but, might not be that though. Yeah. But please don't make, <laughs> you know, that, that 45, 50 year old teacher who, has just been like smashing her head against the desk, trying to teach five kids on a screen and 15, 20 kids in her room at the same time, you know, while trying to keep them all in, in little three foot spaces so they don't mm -hmm. touch each other. Um, and telling, you know, Johnny to keep his mask on. Don't make that teacher now have to go teach summer school. Mm. She's tired. Teach your contract. Because that's what we said earlier. Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. honor your deal and <laughs> then sure. please take a break. You need a break. Because you've earned it. Absolutely. Everyone has earned it. You deserve it because this is Teacher Appreciation Week and mm -hmm. we appreciate you. Look out. Look at full circle. Full circle, Glenn. baby. We just came full circle <laughs> on the whole part of the podcast. It's because we're professionals. And now I'm going to professionally say that coming up next is Sherry Jones and you should stay with us. It is like a spider web. These diverse interconnected spaces help and inspire us to understand, empathize, and take local action in our schools. That's Yahaira Guedes, a facilitator within the Teach the Global Goals community on Participate. The community is home to hundreds of resources, courses, and educators around the world collaborating on how to bring the United Nations 17 Sustainable Development Goals into the classroom. With our students, 
and as a collective to be a powerful force to achieve the vision of a more peaceful, healthy, and equitable world. We'll hear more later in the episode from another community facilitator on why you should get involved. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Our guest is a philosophy and game studies subject matter expert and instructor at Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design, where she develops courses on the philosophy and psychology of game design and on the use of digital games in education. She is our type of person. She's a researcher in open education and of the potential of using blockchain technology to secure open educational resources and to advocate for the design, research, and use of games for learning in higher education and in the gaming industry, Joan serves as the steering committee board member of the International Game Developers Association's Learning Games and Education Special Interest Group. Welcome to the podcast, Sherry Jones. Thank you for having me on. I wanted to actually mention that, that uh, and we joked about it off air, but I wanted to get it on air anyways. They, we heard about you from Noah, our friend Noah Geisel. And anyone who listens, everyone who listens to the podcast knows who Noah is. He's on the, he's on the podcast um, way too much. Um, and, <laughs> he's like a permanent and, guest. <laughs> and he said, you have got to talk to Sherry Jones. She's going to blow your mind. So no pressure, but like, I mean, any friend of Noah's is a friend of ours and he, he knows our people and, and we're excited to have you on. Oh, that's great. That I, I, I think Noah is fairly brilliant too. So I'm glad he helped us forge this connection today. Awesome. Uh, Sherry, let's first talk about your webcast series called Ethics and Games, and it's in a live educational web series created by you and hosted by Kay Novak and Chris Lukes. Hopefully I'm saying that correct. Um, And in the uh, podcast, you introduce an ethical theory or a moral philosophy through the study of a digital game. Can you tell us more about the webcast series? So first I have to because I have many titles, I just want to make sure that your listeners know that primarily I'm a philosophy professor who kind of got dropped into game design later, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so um, what I was trying to do, when uh, I've been doing this for more than a decade, and I've noticed that my philosophy students have a very hard time grasping ethical theory, philosophical theory, right? Conceptualizing what it is mm. that we're teaching them. So even if I tell them in narrative form a philosophy, they still have a hard time grasping it. So I started to use video games in in the classroom. Mm. And I particularly picked on free games so that it doesn't cost students anything. Mm -hmm. But that was for a decade I've been doing this, which is let's play this game and use this game as a thought experiment that help you understand the philosophical theory or ethical theory that we're discussing in class. Mm. So... Later on, the um, International Society for Technology and Education, ISTE, um, uh, Games and Simulations uh, Network, (laughs) to give them a shout out, asked me to present a series for them. So what I did was I I decided to just do a video series where I tried to teach one or two philosophical theories using a game that's probably popular 
to the public. And that's how that series came about. So each theory was focused on one particular philosopher and a couple of theories that people can actually handle using video games. That's fantastic. So my follow-up question is, one of the goals of the webcast, there's a series of goals, is to help those that are consuming video games. And often, like you just said, those are our students, whether it be uh, at a university like that you're speaking about, or whether it be high school students that I, I am uh, familiar with, um, to become better informed about the persuasive power of the medium of video games beyond its entertainment. Um, so we'd love to hear more about that and what we can do in, as teachers in this regard. So I think video games were never treated until until recent years because of the good job such as yourself that you're doing to spread the message, right? Mm. That, that until recent years, people see games as frivolous things, as, you know, lowbrow things, as entertainment. So they never thought about the fact that it's a type of medium that spreads a message, <laughs> depending yes. on who the developer is or who the market is for, right? So you're mm -hmm. when you make a game, it's supposed to speak to a particular audience. And based on the ideology that the audience has, the game often reflects that. So what I was trying to do was to say, hey, you know what? Video game is now the biggest medium that's being consumed all across the world. I mean, it's more it's consumed more than movies, yes. music, and all other type of medium. So I'm thinking to myself, uh, we need to have a serious conversation of what kind of messages games are actually expressing to its players. And we can say, well, there's this magical thinking, which I'm not accusing anyone of doing, but there are a few folks that thinks that if you just put a child in front of a video game, they somehow learn something. But that concept is as if you're putting a child in front of television and just say, watch something and learn something. <laughs> that's not, you know, that's not how things work. And we as educators, I mean, we as educators really understand this, which is our job is to help students critically think about what it is that they're consuming. We help them think in various angles, right, to understand how to analyze, synthesize, you know, uh, hypothesize, infer, all those kind of tools. That's our job to help them do that. So when we, when I use video games, one, there's multiple reasons why I use them, but that was one of the reasons is I want them to recognize that video games have political and social messages, just like yes. books and films and music and everything else. And sometimes they're more political than other mediums. Um, Absolutely. So that was the purpose of that series. Yeah, that was one of the purposes. You know, when I think of games that you might be interested in, tell me if I'm on the mark here. I'm thinking about games like Papers, Please, for example, uh, Gone Home. Um, is probably a, a really good example. We actually did, you'd actually be into this. We do, um, on on um, the, the company I work for, Participate, um, we have a game-based learning community and we do some live streaming and uh, um, um, a mutual friend of at least Glenn and I, Steve Isaacs, and I do, a, um, uh, do what's called the game study. And in the game study, we did a we did a whole series on Gone Home with uh, with Paul Darvasi, um, which was uh, super cool. That that's the kind of game I think. Am, am I reading that right? That when you're talking about like like um, thinking through deep issues and having like nuanced conversations, Gone Home, Papers Please. These are these are games that 
really fit that mold really well, right? Yeah, I I was a co-presenter with Steve once upon a time. I can't remember which year. (laughs) I think we've all been co-presenters with Steve once upon a time. I know, it's like a small circle, you know. Um, But I'm pretty sure I was the one that introduced game studies to to the folks. And game studies is not... Let me explain the feel for just a second, okay? Game study is not just the study of games. It's actually an entire field where people from different disciplines, philosophy, um, biology, chemistry, architecture, art, design, geology, uses games to teach. But specifically, there's other questions that we ask about games, such as, what exactly is the effect of games on us psychologically? What is the root of games to uh, civilization? How was civilization built? So game studies itself is a super complex discipline. And yes, Mike, I of course I would endorse that kind of study <laughs> with mm. your group because that's the point is to recognize that games is a kind of interactive literature, but different than literature in the sense that we're passively absorbing it, we are actually doing the procedures that are involved in the narrative to understand the the um, how our actions feed into our understanding, meaning making of the environment that we're in. So of course, I would endorse that. Of course, I think that that's, that's a really good way to um, incorporate education to kinetic movements, if you will. And I don't want to go into Merleau-Ponty. <laughs> Philosopher Malone Fonti will tell you that uh, the body, the body is part of meaning making. Um, so to remove the body, to not recognize that the body, the movement of the body actually help us understand the world is a mistake. Um, that's what games can actually help us go toward that direction. Interesting. Super interesting. You, uh, uh, you, you linked an article and I haven't read it yet, but I, I'm telling you it's on my screen right over here so I can read it later about <laughs> fallout, about the link between fallout and, and philosophy. Fallout is like my jam. I've, I am obsessed with that series. So I, I'm excited to read it. I want to switch gears a little bit because one of your other passions is OERs. And, and you've done a lot of work surrounding OERs and blockchain that I, I find absolutely fascinating. Um, and I know people are starting to hear, for example, the term, um, blo- like, I mean, the term blockchain has been around for a little bit. I mean, people know what, people may not know what Bitcoin is, but they've definitely heard of Bitcoin. Um, um, but people are starting to hear, for example, the term NFT all over the place. Like NFT is like the you know, first quarter buzzword of 2021 for sure. (laughs) So before we go down this path of questioning, I thought it might be helpful to define some terms. Um, I I think the conversation we're about to have might be the first exposure that some of our listeners have to some of these concepts. So let's talk about blockchain, what it is, what it isn't. Um, You may want to also like really briefly explain again what OERs are. We've talked about them on the podcast before, um, but it wouldn't hurt for a refresher on that as well. Let's start with OER. That's an easier concept. Um, Yeah. So OER stands for Open Educational Resources. It's the idea that any material that's published online, that's freely shared with a community across the globe, 
I mean, it could be in the U.S. or across the globe, is considered OER. Now, predating Creative Commons, okay, a lot of us, including myself, were already publishing OER before we recognized what Creative Commons is. And Creative Commons was uh, basically a standard set for copyright to, to enhance users' understanding of U.S. copyright, okay, but also allow the user to append Creative Commons license onto a project that they made so they can ensure that first they can get uh, uh, attribution. So if you use someone's work, you can attribute them for it, but at the same time, you can use it freely to use it in your classroom and so forth. So there's different levels of licensing, and mm -hmm. it's basically what I think the future of education should be because textbooks, learning materials, a lot of them are behind paywall. Um, and that would distinguish those who can pay for and those who cannot. Mm -hmm. And what we want to do is to open up education so that there's a global conversation on education. We can improve education for all, make it more equitable, uh, mm -hmm. make it more inclusive. So different communities can access the material that they couldn't have access before. So OER has this bigger, bigger vision of, you know, global education, open education, which is another term. But let me discuss open education really quick. So open education is part of using OER, but at the same time to imagine education outside of the standard LMS. So LMS stands for learning management system. Yes. So a lot of us would use an LMS and we incorporate maybe a textbook or something in the LMS. But in recent years, for example, anyway, a famous author anyway, have argued for anti-racist ecology. The yes. idea is that the ecology that we currently learn in uh, happens to enforce a traditional, maybe white dominant pedagogy, white dominant hierarchy, white dominant structure. So what he's been saying is that we need to consider of switching the ecology to develop more anti-racist teaching, teaching mm -hmm. methods. And when I heard that, I thought, anyway, you're really talking about open education because open education, some of us are using, for example, wikis, you know, uh, Google sites, uh, whatever, you know, podcasts, such as you guys are doing it, right? Different kind of medium to teach. So it's not um, tethered to just an LMS. It's not just tethered to a textbook, but we use many different methods to reach different type of students. So open education is a lot more innovative than it sounds. And it's not just free, but it really challenges our ability to teach. Should I go into blockchain now? <laughs> Please, yes, because that's where... I mean, and I'm not expecting you to do like blockchain 101 because obviously blockchains fairly can be fairly complicated and it's pretty easy to get into the weeds in blockchain, right? That That's right. I'll give a very short pitch about what blockchain is. Sure. So everyone know what Bitcoin is, I think, at this point um, and also cryptocurrencies. OK, blockchain is the underlying algorithm for creating products such as. Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, but that's not the only thing that blockchain can make. Basically, it's a digital ledger, just like the traditional ledger where you record um, bank statements or uh, bank transactions. They used to be on a physical ledger, right? But blockchain is a virtual ledger where you can record things virtually. And the way you record each transaction is using this thing called a hash value. 
and this hash value is like 36 numbers and so forth, but at 30, 36 or 62, but it's a series of codes with numbers and alphabets, okay? That basically is like a social security number for the object that you're recording. So it's a unique ID for every single thing that's recorded on a blockchain. So just think of it as a digital ledger and it would make a lot more sense. Awesome. So we're going to link uh, an article that you wrote, a journal article that you wrote, because a lot of our conversation, um, a lot of what I'm going to ask you about is kind of based on this, this, this journal article, which is talking about OER and blockchain as it relates specifically to academic writing, which is super, like, I mean, it's a, it's, it's fascinating. So I feel like the problem statement that we're addressing uh, when we talk about OERs and blockchain and academic writing is that academic writing, scholastic writing, writing for journals is a bit of a racket. Um, And that's to use like the most, um, you know, blunt terms as possible. But I mean, um, scholars pay, have to pay to get their, journal articles published there is definitely like a pay to play um scheme in a lot of this world um that is just absolutely like i mean it it harkens back to like i think about payola which is like the classic you know radio schemes from the from the 50s and 60s um and and so it's it's a racket and there are a small amount of companies making giant amounts of money on the backs of academic research. Um, And so, um, you know, this idea that you're addressing is that uh, blockchain might be the solution to, to this problem statement. So, you know, what is, can you dive into a little more detail? Like I've kind of brushed over it, but what is, um, so problematic about our current state of affairs with academic writing and publishing, um, you know, the way it exists today. I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine. I, yeah, it's something I obsess over for a long time. So here's the thing. When, as, as academics, when we submit our papers to a journal, uh, we don't make money off our articles, you know. We do it because... Uh, we're trying to spread knowledge. Some of us do it for mm-hmm. tenure, whatever. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but when you write these articles, we don't make any money. The publisher make money off our work because, you know, they're managing the material. The problem with that is a lot of our articles, again, are behind paywall. So it's a pay to read <laughs> system. And yeah. some article could be $30. Other article could be $200. So if you don't have money, you can't you can't read it. And in this wow. world right now where misinformation and disinformation basically proliferate the net, I think that scholarly research really, really needs to be open. Okay. So some of us are trying to open our work, but I don't think it's that bad to mention Elsevier. It's pretty famous mm. <laughs> for what it's doing. So Elsevier is one of the, I just do call them out as one of the bigger academic publisher. They own a lot of publication. And for some of us who want to have our stuff open, so say, hey, we want our stuff open. We don't want it behind paywall. Can we have it open so someone can read it? We actually have to pay Elsevier money for the oh article to be open. 
So the cost, depending on what kind of discipline you're in, what kind of article you're writing, it can cost anywhere from $3,000 to $15,000 for one article. So Holy. <laughs> now imagine a scientist or, or, or uh, okay, let's talk about the brutal reality. So many people who graduate from the sciences, especially when they're interning or when they're just starting out, they're making maybe 30000 or maybe 40000 yep. a year. Yeah. And if you're telling them to pay $15,000 right, for Ridiculous. gold, that's called the gold access, open access, gold open access uh, article, I don't think most of us can afford it. So a lot of us get hidden behind paywall, right? So only students who have access through school institutional access, such as like Google Scholar or Academic Search Premier, can read those articles. But everybody else has no access to them. Um, so for us, open open access, people who are really promoting open access, we're trying to think about how do we get our stuff published so that we're not paying predatory publishers, $3,000 to $15,000, and that number goes up every year. Um, how are we supposed to do that to get our stuff out there? So the question was, okay, I bump into this technology called blockchain. And what is it? It's a digital ledger. Now, let me track, go back a little bit and tell you one of the stories that I often bring up without mentioning companies or anything. So I said um, earlier that I've been publishing my materials uh, I, I've been teaching with games for, for, you know, more than a decade. And I also have been publishing all my material for free on the internet for more than a decade. Why? Because I feel like I want people to learn from my stuff because everything yes. is behind paywall. I found out <laughs> after learning to put a uh, Creative Commons license on my material that says, please attribute to me, but use it freely. So it doesn't cost you anything, but at least give me credit for the one generating this material. Of course, yeah. I found out from someone who told me that my stuff showed up in a courseware being sold as a package and oh my, my name God. was stripped from my material. Now, CC licenses were on there, but hey, how, how do I trace any of that? I don't know that unless someone tell me, right? Yeah. My, my stuff was being used and recycled and I say, I'm not making a profit. My whole point was to give my stuff free to the, to the educational community. I want students to learn, I want people to learn. And you're actually reselling my stuff and stripping my name off the material. So I started to investigate and go, what exactly is the technology can help solve this problem? I bump into blockchain. What exactly is so special about blockchain? Blockchain records are permanent. It records the creator. It records the publisher. It can record the date of publication. It can record when in exchange hand. It can even record the variation. So if someone did a made a derivative of my work, it will also record that. That's the bigger version of what a bigger vision of sense. what I have for blockchain. So when my article came out, I was invited by the, the US Department of Education to go to DC to participate in the Education Blockchain Summit. So they they held it twice in DC. We were supposed to go back the third time until, but the pandemic kind of stopped us from doing that. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but we went back and many, many entities without naming specific company, because I'm really not allowed to, the, many entities were there to propose solutions 
um, using blockchain, different type of blockchain, different kind of material to store all educational records. And we're talking about transcripts. We're talking about student ID. We're talking about grades, everything, right? Everything wow. using blockchain technology. So when they saw my article, they were very inspired and said, you need to come and join the conversation. That's how I got to DC. And here I am. Now I'm working for the Colorado Department of Higher Education and I'm on the OER Council, still continue the fight too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't help but think any, anyone who has any kind of fascination with like things of internet lore and, and stories, probably one of the most f famous and tragic stories is actually really related to this. And that's that Aaron Schwartz and JSTOR story. Right. Um, and, and I would encourage anyone to read up on this, but this, 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 this person, Aaron, Aaron Schwartz, who was previously already famous um, and well-known basically, you know, was against what you're talking about, the paywalling of academic knowledge. And so he took a whole bunch of, um, you know, material from JSTOR and just <laughs> released it. Um, and he got, they went after him and, and, you know, he was supposed to go to jail and he ended up committing suicide. It's a, it's really a, it's really a horrible story. And it's, it's fairly well known because of how well known Aaron Schwartz was prior to, to this event. But you know, the irony is that in 2013, JSTOR committed to, like, improving, you know, the work that they did. But they they still made, they made $86 million in 2015. $86 million on the backs of academics writing papers for them for, for free, not getting, not getting paid. Yeah, uh, most academics get paid by going to conferences and, and presenting and, and speaking and writing books, you know, even, and even that doesn't make as much money as a lot of people think it makes. So, I mean, and obviously being, you know, a teacher, a professor somewhere, um, which unless you're a tenured professor also isn't making as much, um, money. And that's a whole other podcast that we could get into for sure. Um, so, you, you've written about how blockchain could solve this issue um, and, and how it could be used in OER. Um, you've written that it could protect a scholar's copyright by preserving publication data in the ledger, in the block, in blocks, help scholars publish OERs without fear of non-attribution or fear of their material being misused. Uh, which is interesting, uh, record and sustain OER information on the blockchain. So this is kind of like um, using the metadata of the, of, the, of the blockchain information, the ledger note to record, you know, what this piece is, what it is. Um, enable scholars to form their own OER publishing networks that bypass predatory publishers. Wow. Like, I mean... There's a lot of, speaking of JSTOR, I bet you they hate hearing that. Um, <laughs> so I, I like how you detailed some of the ways blockchain could help with OER adoption. But um, coming from someone who does understand this world a little bit, um, I think the solution in practicality is, is pretty complicated. Um, 
and it would require a lot of people to get on board, um, you know, and that's why you have to have like a summit and you have to have tons of people there because it does, it's not just a couple of teachers saying we're not getting paid for our journal articles. There's so many more people um, that have to be involved, um, including the J stores. And, and, you know, even though they might not like what they're hearing they're they have to be at that table in some way, shape or form, I, I guess. Right. Um, so do you think academia has the stomach to basically turn the tables on years of writing for profit? That is such a great question. And here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing. Academia, look, when there's money involved, things change. Mm. <laughs> the Colorado Department of Education was already trying to encourage companies to consider this bigger picture, to understand that they want to invite corporations to help with the effort, but there's money to be made, but also at the same time to protect, to protect teachers and protect institutions. Now, the next project, which I'm not sure, but afterwards we can, I can give you the link, but, um, Colorado has uh, a site called learningeconomy.io, I believe it's .io, and Learning Economy is Colorado State's effort combined with uh, corporations, businesses, and so forth to consider how to use blockchain technology, how to develop software using blockchain technology to, to protect all kinds of material, to store all kinds of material. So this work is already happening. Um, Arizona is also doing similar effort and both states, as well as many university, big Ivy League universities, I shall not name, but Ivy League universities, we are all in attendance at the summit. So there's big work that's being done. And like I said, uh, Mike, I agree with you. You're thinking, man, can academia actually handle this? Well, we're pouring money in. There's millions, Colorado already poured in millions of dollars trying to promote OER and trying to educate teachers on what Creative Commons is, right? Mm -hmm. The next step is to use this technology to protect everyone's copyright. And therefore, students know who they're citing and also student gets recorded. So when students create open educational resources, they will also be credited, attributed. Hmm. Um, and that is the bigger picture. And then the second part about what the learning economy is trying to do is to think about um, how to create digital passports or uh, I can say digital ID, if you will, right? That connect their educational records directly to work. So instead of going through, you know, instead of obtaining a transcript, for example, through the university, which take like a day or two to get this process going, uh, and right. also go through National Clearinghouse. Um, the information will be directly on the student's app. So that's called Self-Sovereign Identity App, SSI. Mm. Again, Self-Sovereign Identity App, okay? That's the idea that it's a genuine ID that recognizes who the user is, but the user can decide what information they want to release to a business that's requesting for information about their background. So in the future, there will be a connection between educational records and directly to employers. And also, we're not just going to store transcript, we're going to start storing skills. So every skill that the student learned from a class, for example, might be stored on the SSI 
uh, application. And SSI also work with blockchain. So don't worry about the technicality. <laughs> and digital credentials, though. We're talking about badging, too, though. Like, we're talking about, like, you could you could earn a digital credential, have it stored in your profile on the blockchain, and then anyone looking you up, like, let's say you apply for a job, your your digital credentials that you've earned, you know, you went and got a some sort of certification from Microsoft for something, right. right? That could right. be stored in your profile as a as a as a an NFT or something loaded into your or whatever. Like there's a lot wow, it's <laughs> yeah. It blows the, your mind. It's so cool. The bigger picture too, and this might be scary and I'm going to say it and I'm sorry to say it, but the bigger picture about the student's digital educational journey, if you think about this SSI app, right? Yeah. It's that the student can learn from third party beyond the university. I'm not going to name all the companies, but I can get education badges like you're talking about, yeah. certification from different sources, and they can create this journey for themselves, specialized based on the job that they're they're going after. Because each mm -hmm. job, they will say, here's what you need, here's a certification, here's whatever skill that you have. And a student can use the information that they have and uh, specialize for a specific job. So in the future, it wouldn't just be higher education, which we still would be a very important part of students' journey, but they can literally record from any source and that becomes their documentation, becomes their mm. ID. Fascinating stuff. Sounds like an amazing future. Um, <laughs> if, if our teachers that are listeners, actually uh, educators of all sorts, want to connect with you online, Sherry, uh, to continue this conversation, how can we do that? Uh, Twitter is a very quick way to do it. So my Twitter ID is Otness, A-U-T-T as in Tom, N as in Nancy, E-S as in Sam, Otness. That's my platform name, by the way. That's like, we call that the planking name. <laughs> it's like plank across the internet using that username. So if you actually search for that, you'll see all my hundreds of social media accounts. But that's how you connect with me. Perfect. Sherry Jones, thanks so much for the conversation and coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. This is Ava Gay Blackford, another facilitator within the Teach SDGs community. I believe that education is the most powerful force to encourage human rights and dignity, to wipe out poverty and strengthen sustainability, to build a better future for all. I think others should join this community because it creates a support network for members and serves as a global gathering place for teachers to share stories and support one another as we all figure out what learning looks like during the current global pandemic. To access hundreds of resources about the global goals and to connect with almost 1,000 educators around the world, join the free Teach the Global Goals community. Visit go.participate.com slash global goals to get started. Thanks for listening to On Education. My name is Glenn Irvin. My co-host is Mike Washburn. On Education is part of the On Podcast Media Network. You can listen to this show and many others by great educators like Monica Burns, Mike Matera, Tisha Richmond, and many more by visiting onpodcastmedia.com. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website, oneducationpodcast.com. 
You can tweet us at OnEducationPod. Mike is at Mr. Washburn on Twitter. And I can be found on Twitter at Herb Spanish. You can find us on Facebook by visiting Facebook.com slash OnEducationPod. We're also on Instagram at OnEducationPod. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we would be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. We want to thank our presenting sponsor, Participate, for supporting us. Check out Participate.com to learn more about them. Thanks as always for listening. Stay awesome and see you soon.